It was a bit of a buffet masters because we got exposed to a lot of different technologies and a lot of different programming languages. We did, you know, very intense R, very intense Python, very intense SQL. And then on top of that, learned a couple of random things. I know we learned like Hive, we learned MongoDB, just random. But by being exposed to so much, it helped me have a good idea of everything that was out there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a businesswoman, statistician, and analyst helping companies harness the power of data. She's an internationally renowned speaker who has been featured on many podcasts, in many conferences, and speaking engagements all around the world. She's a second-generation Greek-American who spent a decade living abroad in Madrid, Spain, and has traveled to over 50 countries, experiencing firsthand the beauty and variety of human culture and language. Not only does she have an incredibly impressive educational background, she's also worked at Google and is currently at Waze. Not only that, though, she's an adjunct faculty member at the IE Business School. She's followed a unique path to make a name for herself in the field of data science and data analytics at the global scale. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a woman whose hope is to bring advanced data technologies to the masses, Christina Stathopoulos. Christina, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I'm happy to have you here. No. And Sorry for almost butchering your name, man. That was uh, no, no, no. Yeah, I was actually gonna say you did a good job with the name. People kill it sometimes, and you did good. So, so no thank worries. You. And thank you for the warm welcome, and thanks for having me on the on the show today. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. So we've been we've been like in contact through our, our group chats and and chatting with each other for for almost two ish years. Feels like I'm not sure. It must have been early 2020 when all this happened. Well, we've never actually, you know, got a chance to sit down and chat with each other. So this is the first time for that. So I'm excited to finally get to know you and, and you know, be actual friends now after this. This is going to be great. So yeah, yeah. I want to learn a little bit more about you. So let's start with, talk to us about where you grew up and what it was like there. Yeah, so I actually, I grew up in the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a bit quiet for my tastes, if you've ever been around that area. It's really nice, very relaxed lifestyle. It's very green, good weather, minus the humidity, but I, I like the humidity. So so I grew up there and then I went to college nearby in Raleigh, North Carolina. I went to NC State. And actually within a month of graduating there, I moved abroad to Madrid. So completely changed, completely changed everything. Got up and left left my my life behind in North Carolina, moved to Spain, worked abroad, learned learned a new language. And then in April of this year, accepted a new job with Waze 
and ended up moving to New York City just a couple months ago. So lots of different moving around, but now I'm I'm settling down in New York City. That's awesome, man. That, that's so cool that you spent a decade abroad in Spain. How did that happen? Like, how did you, like, there's like so many logistical challenges. Did you go there on a vacation? You're like, I'm just staying here. Or were you like, all right, I'm going to Spain. I'm moving there. Like, how did that play out? Yeah, there's a lot of different factors in play. I knew that when I graduated college, I was set on moving to another country, um, trying to learn another language. And originally, I was looking at going to Asia. So I wanted to go to like, you know, Tokyo, Hong Kong, South Korea. And I wanted to go to one of these countries, do the typical like teaching English abroad while learning about the culture and learning the language. And ended up settling on Spain, didn't go to Asia, which I think was a good decision in the end, mainly because of the language. So I knew that if I learned Spanish, then I came back to the US with that that language skill, then it would, I mean, it, it's it's a huge skill to have here in the US because we have so many Spanish speakers. So it ended up, yeah, I ended up settling on Spain really, a lot of it because of the language. And I was only going for a year or two. It wasn't my plan to stay <laughs> as long as I did. It just kind of happened. One thing led to the other and I ended up staying. That's pretty interesting. Actually, I was about to teach English in Korea as well. So kind of a similar-ish time frame and like you know so so I, I when i was during like you know last semester last couple of semesters of, of undergrad i worked at a uh, hotel as like a, a driver for a hotel just driving people around i met somebody and, and he was asking what i'm going to do after i graduate and i was like dude i got no fucking clue like the economy sucks i don't know what's going on he's like you should go teach korea in japan or sorry teach english in korea or japan and i was like oh that sounds like an interesting idea and i was about to f- go through with it like filled out the paperwork, had everything done. And it turned out that whoever like the agent was that we're going to go through, um, it didn't work out. Like it was some kind of scam or something he was running and like, it, it just didn't work out. And like, so you didn't end up going, didn't end up going. No, didn't no. end up going. But like, I was dead set on going, like it was about to, about to happen. So what was that experience like teaching? Like, did you, you taught English there for a while? How'd you transition into analytics from that? Yeah. And I was going to say, it's a pity you didn't make it because I've heard great things about teaching abroad in, in, in Korea and also in Japan. It's a really, really good experience. But for me in Spain, I did end up teaching English. I was doing not something typical. It was like freelance. So I acted as a, I called myself like a business English consultant and I would go to different companies and I would work one-on-one with like different executives, many times the C-suite helping them with their English, just because in Spain, it's common to have a low level of English. And now with the world much more international, companies need, they need to be, they need to have an international presence and they needed help with the language. So I would do a lot of like one-to-one with these executives, helping them um, with their reports, helping them with public speaking in English. And I did that for a while. I don't even remember how many years, but I was doing that for a few years. And then after about two I think it was in my second year or my third year, I realized, okay, well, I still, this is not what I want to do for life. Like I came here just to do this for some time for fun kind of. And then, you know, I, but I wanted to end up back closer to statistics. And I started exploring how I could do that in Spain. The way I pivoted back into it was doing a master's there. Um, again, I looked at doing my master's in the US, but was convinced by a program that I found in Spain at IE Business School did my master's in business analytics and big data. And I used that to pivot into that field. And also about that by that time, I was speaking good Spanish, which was, which was a huge, uh, a huge thing that I could speak, obviously good English, 
And now I could be fluent in Spanish. So from there, I pivoted into the world of analytics and uh, got different jobs and kept growing and eventually landed a job at Google Spain. So it wasn't even like very difficult learning the analytics part because you already had that strong background. The, the biggest challenge, it seems like, was trying to learn the language while you were there. So you, did you know any Spanish like when you moved there, like completely nothing? How'd you learn another language as an adult? Like, was that challenging? Like, how'd you, how'd you figure that out? It was really challenging. And they say that when you're an adult, it's much harder to pick up a language than when you're a kid. I had no Spanish when I went to Spain. I started from scratch, from zero. And what I first started with was Rosetta Stone. I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the yeah, program like Rosetta the, Stone. That's the OG stuff, man. That's the, the old school software, yeah. Before yeah. Duolingo. But, yeah, no, I, but I loved Rosetta Stone. I used that to get the basics. I was studying it on my own. I came to Spain and in the first month did like an intensive Spanish class where for one month, all I did was study Spanish all day. I would go to class, I don't remember, like six, seven hours a day and then study on my own. And then after that one month of class, I learned it by immersion. So I didn't do any more, didn't really do any more formal classes and learned the rest by immersion and then just by studying and teaching myself. That's pretty much the best way to learn language, right? Is doing it by immersion. Yeah. It doesn't even matter if it's like- But it's the, hard. It's hard, right? Because you have to- It's really hard. And so that's before a time of like Google Translate or anything like that. So that that was, yeah, that's probably super, super challenging. Google Translate, I think, was there, but it wasn't as good as it is today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Do you know Do you know any other languages? I mean, so I speak, my wife is listening. If I tell her I speak Punjabi, she'll <laughs> laugh at me. But yeah, I, I speak Ish Punjabi and a little bit of Hindi, but mostly, you know, English. But oh. like I grew up in California, so we spoke a lot of Spanish in, in school. So like I'm pretty comfortable with Spanish. We went to Spain in summer 2019 and I was getting us by on Spanish. Just, you know, you know, I, I brushed up on my Spanish like a month before we'd taken off and then I had the support of Google Translate. So I was able to, to translate fairly easily. I don't know. I think languages are something that kind of comes easy-ish to me. My wife and I travel quite a bit as well. And even when I was in, you know, we we're in Croatia, like I picked up the language kind of quickly enough to like convince people within the first minute or so that I actually spoke it, then they start talking. I'm like, got no clue what you're saying. I have to Google translate that. But yeah, what, what about you besides Spanish? So you're completely fluent now, right? Pretty. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fluent now. Yeah. 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 And then besides that, I know a little bit of Greek, but again, my family would laugh at me if they heard me saying that because I've forgotten most of my Greek. I was really good as it as a, as a kid. I had to go to Greek school, very typical Greek American. I had to go to Greek school every day after regular school. And I used to write it and speak it and everything, but then I, I let it go. I don't know. I stopped going to that when I was, who knows, like 12 years old. And since then I haven't practiced it. So I don't really remember it. Whenever I visit Greece, I'll hear people talking and I can, I can pull out things that they're saying, but I would, I would say I'm definitely back to a basic Greek language understander today. That's still pretty cool though. You got like good immersion in your, in your culture, like growing up. I absolutely love that. Yeah. So when you came back, so 10 years abroad in another country, did your original accent change? Like, do you have your friends like said they noticed the difference between how you used to talk and then how your English is now? Did that happen? It's funny you ask that. And I wonder, have you have you met other people that that happened to? Have you heard about this before? Because yeah, it did. Yeah. It did happen to me. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely yeah. heard about it. So like one of the tour guides that when we were in Australia, she sounded completely Australian, but she was from Tennessee. 
and then also like I uh, I taught math for a while. One of my students, Kentaro Cross, who's since passed away, a young kid, he moved to New Zealand and Australia. He's there for like 10 years. And then I remember him as one of my students in high school, completely just, you know, total California accent. And then when I talked to him there, when we met up with him, he sounded completely different. So that that, that happened to you, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My my English accent is completely warped. And, you know, you do, we didn't know each other many years ago. But if you had met me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and then you were talking to me now, you would be like, you know, what the heck? You you sound completely different. And I get it from family and friends all the time. And people will laugh at me just because also my vocabulary has changed. And I'll say things and they'll be like, what are you like? Why are you using that word? <laughs> What's an example of, of, of that? I think one of the, the most common ones that people laugh about is that here, everybody says college. Mm. And whenever I'm talking about it, I always say university. And okay. I also pronounce it really well. And they're like, what are you saying? University. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, because that's just what they say in, in Europe and in Spain. They wouldn't say college. Like if I said college, it actually throws people off in Spanish, because, in, in Spain, because in Spanish, colegio is high school. Oh. So if I use the word college in English, they're going to think I'm trying to refer to colegio, which is high school. So yeah. I changed my English to say university so that people wouldn't get confused. Yeah, they say university a lot in, in Canada, too. something I noticed. Ah. Like, they don't use the word college. They also say university. When they say college, they refer to like a non-university, which is like one of those, I guess, community colleges okay. or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you're quite a busy person. One of the busiest people that I know, I know we joke about that in our group chat you and kate are quite quite busy how do you balance all of these activities all of these speaking engagements and teaching plus having like a full-time job it's a very good question and i have to admit there's no secret sauce i'm just very i think i'm very productive i keep myself very busy and i am like i'm, I'm a really big fan of like keeping a, a checklist i have i make my checklist for the week and I block it off on my calendar. Like I, I set aside time when I'm going to get this done, when I'm going to get this done. And I try to stick to it. And then throughout the week, I'm always updating it and changing around that plan just because the unexpected happens or some things take longer than you expected. So I, I try to stick to a schedule. I love being on a schedule and I'm using a checklist and like physically checking off as I get things done. But besides that, there's no other, there's no other secret. Just I try to stay on schedule and not get behind because especially if you have that many commitments, once you get behind, I mean, it can, it can kind of spiral out of control. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of uh, physical checklists as well. This is, ah, <laughs> this is. I love one, it. Yeah. I love it. It's, mine's just like, I don't, I don't have like a strict uh, schedule per se. I kind of just say, all right, these are the big things that I want to get done. And I try to keep it just like three or four things. Um, that way just keeps me focused on the most uh, important stuff. Yeah. And, do you have any tips, by the way? Because I know you're you're also, you do a ton of different things. So you're yeah. very similar. I mean, what do you, you have the checklist, but is there anything mm -hmm. else you do to be able to get so much done in your day? Yeah, I just, I keep it limited to just the highest impact activities. And I just try not to do too many of them. So I don't take on like a lot. Like I just say, I just try to make the work that I do super impactful. And then whatever I could, like, you know, with the podcast, for example, I could pay somebody to, to do all the transcription and all the cleaning and uploading and all that stuff. So I just pay somebody to do that. You know, even like cleaning the house, like I just pay somebody to do it. Uh, I just try to do the most meaningful stuff. It, the only regimented part of my day is probably my morning. That's, you know, very sequential. It'll be 
do my journaling, then I do some reading, and then my son will probably wake up by this time. It'll be seven thirty ish. I'll play specifically playing with him on in the morning Tuesdays, uh, Thursdays, and Fridays because those are the days my wife has to go to work. Uh, those other days I work on stuff and then go to the gym, shower, and then work. So that part is very regimented, but the rest of the day it's just mm-hmm. highest impact activities that. Especially at work, whatever I can do to keep the the needle. Oh, yeah, you have a full time job as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But dude, I'm like super distractible. Like it's very, very bad. Like it's it's a struggle for me to to just actually focus. It's hard, man. That's why I try to keep like life analog. That's why I don't do digital books. I don't, you know, I don't use the computer until you know nine thirty a.m. or whatever. Like I keep everything analog up until then. How about you? You're quite distractible. I am distractible, but I know that it's very important. Like multitasking is not always possible. So I try to avoid it. I mean, it's really important to find one thing, stick to it, finish it, and then go to the next. The minute that I start multitasking, I get involved with a bunch of different things and then I never end up finishing any of them. So I think there's only certain cases where multitasking works. And then also it's funny that you said about like prioritizing the most impactful things. I think I, this is something I actually have to work on is that I'm not good at saying, and you have to get very like strategic. And at, at, I mean, it's true that when you're first starting your career, you're not going to say no as often. You actually should take almost everything that you can. But as you get you know, further along in your career, And especially like in our cases where you and I were involved in a lot of different things, there's one point where you cannot say yes to everything or you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to have to sacrifice things in your own personal life. So one thing I'm working on is learning how to say no and be more strategic about what I do. And like you said, just find things that are more impactful. So I make sure that what I am doing, it's having a bigger impact and a better impact. Yeah. I like that because earlier in in your career, you're kind of exploring then later you're exploiting you have too much coming at your way at once you need to filter it out and then just focus on the on the key stuff speaking about focusing on on key stuff i know you and i are both uh, fans of reading how did you develop this reading habit and how are you getting all these books are like are you getting them delivered to you or do you have like a book exchange thing like how's this how's this working Yes. Well, so two questions. You asked about this. How did I get involved with this this reading thing? I've always liked reading. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with going to the library with my mom and renting a bunch of books and and reading. And then I kind of left that habit behind later on in high school. Very typical, you know, you become a teenager and there's more important things like your friends left that reading behind in in high school, in university, and then later on picked it up as an adult. And I tried to stick to this book a week challenge that I do. Book a week, book a month, but whatever it may be, try to pick up this habit of continuous, continuously uh, reading every day, making it a habit, a regular thing of your day. And how do I do it? So with a book a week, it's a lot of books. So it's 52 books a year, but most of them I own. I have them here and I'm just building out my library because my, my dream would be in the future to have a library in my house, like a room with all my books and be able to go and read. So I do purchase most of my books where I get them is just, I mean, ordering them. Yeah. I have them delivered. What I, at least pre pandemic, I loved when I was traveling, I would try to find local bookshops and I would try to buy books along the way. So while I was traveling, I've, I've found some really odd, you know, very unique books when I've traveled. Now, obviously with COVID, I haven't been able to do that as much. So I'm just ordering. But it was also another thing that I look forward to when I was when I was traveling. And 
fiction, nonfiction? What's your kind of what's what's your go to? I know you, you do a mix, but is it leaning yeah. more in one direction than the other? Between fiction and nonfiction, honestly, no. I think I have a pretty good balance between those sides. I have I have a, a problem that I always want to read sci-fi, <laughs> so it's like I have to stay like keep myself away and balance the sci-fi. I love sci-fi. I also love historical historical. But yeah, I mean, I I'll pretty much read a little bit of of everything, and I like I think that helps is when you're changing genres constantly and reading different things. It it keeps your mind curious. Audiobooks at all? Do you do audiobooks or just no. strictly? So I I use reading as a time to disconnect from electronics. So I don't do oh. audio. I don't do digital ebooks. I only do physical paperback books. And there's a reason for that. I mean, it's because I don't want to be using any sort of electronic when I'm reading. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I, I paper books. That's it, man. Like I try to read on on screen. It's like you talk about multitasking. There's a thing called multi-tabbing, right? When you just have so many tabs open, it's just like too distracting. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. one thing I need to, I want to start getting more into is fiction. I do not read enough fiction. I, I read primarily like nonfiction. I will give you recommendations then. Please do, yes. I, let I me, want, let me sci-fi. send yeah. you some. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, sci-fi. Yes, absolutely. If you want sci-fi, historical fiction, but I will send you some suggestions later on. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. So let's talk more about some data stuff. I guess that's what the uh, people yeah. are, are are here for. So when it comes to like all these careers in, in data science, right? In the data space, rather, I, I kind of umbrella everything as data science, but there's all these different roles, right? Data analyst, data scientist, machine learning engineer, ML ops engineer, so on and so forth. How can someone who's new to the space decide which direction is right for them? And, you know, how did you kind of figure out what direction you wanted to go into? I think it's it's like you have to treat it like a buffet at first, because you're right. You have all of these different positions. And especially as an outsider, it's really difficult for you to see the difference between them. So treat it like a buffet and get a taste of everything or as much as possible so you can find what interests you most and then use that to narrow down on a couple of them. And always, I mean, always keep an open mind. So don't make assumptions about uh, a role or a path until you've really gotten to know it, because you never know. You never know what's going to end up being your calling. And then as well, keeping in mind that you can change. I mean, a lot of times people take one path, but then they evolve into another. It's very common to be a data analyst and then evolve into a data scientist or move around from like data science to data engineering. Very, very common to move around, but it's definitely important to get kind of a concentration at the beginning and find where you're going to take that path. So I think having that approach where you get a taste of everything and start narrowing it down. And I mean, even in my case, I've changed around quite a lot since I've been working in the data space. Like I started as a systems engineer and then I became a data engineer and then I was an analytical consultant at Google. So my roles have changed quite a lot but still always very like data heavy. So I would say, yeah, I would say that to treat it like a, a buffet. And I think one of the best ways to figure out which one sounds most interesting to you is, is networking and trying to talk to people who are currently in those positions. So find a way to get connected to an ML engineer, find a way to get connected to a data scientist, find some one-on-one -on -one time with them or in groups and ask them a little bit about what their day-to-day -day is like, what they like about the job, what's the most challenging thing, and and see which one resonates with you. So 
for you, like, were you always into math? Were you always kind of like a math head? Like, because studying stats, I think you said in, in grad school as well. Do you study stats in, in grad school or, or undergrad and then something else in grad school? Yeah, I always, I loved math and statistics since high school. It was my favorite subject in high school. And then in, in college and in university, I did an interdisciplinary degree with a focus in statistics. I actually started in civil engineering, but I changed out of that, did an interdisciplinary degree, focus in statistics. And then my master's was in business analytics and big data. So it's always had some sort of focus on analytics and statistics. And so in my case, it was very obvious that I wanted to do this, do something in this field. And then it was just a matter of finding which position exactly do I want to go after. Awesome. So talked about how to find your path and how you kind of found your path. Um, so that's all about the stat stuff. But what about those, these soft skills? What are some soft skills that you think have helped you really excel in your career? And this is where I would say my business English comes into play. So I think my, my path was really different because I went and lived abroad. And then I did this business English consulting and teaching. And for some, it might look like, you know, I kind of went off the path completely. How do I mix that back into my journey? But I think I found a unique way to connect it in because during those years that I was doing this business English consulting and working with very high level executives and companies, all of during all of that time, I was working on my own people skills and my own communication skills. And I was learning, in that case, I was learning how to explain complex topics. So in this case, a language, learning how to explain it so that someone coming from another language could understand it and grasp concepts and and grow. So in my case, for me, it's it's totally, it's absolutely one of the most important skills is communication. And from there, you can link that to things like networking, public speaking, people skills, but everything really falls under this umbrella of communication. And the more that you can work on it and develop it, the further you're going to go in your career in data science. And I think you would, I mean, what would you agree with that? Because you're very, you're very active and you're a big communicator as well. So I'm, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that too. Oh, you're muted. Yes, uh, communication. Yeah, communication definitely is key. I think writing is kind of my strongest soft skill, if, if you can call it soft skill, because writing is extremely difficult. Just being able to communicate clearly in written language, I think is crucial, is critical. So you talked about business communication, business writing, for sure, I think is is critical. And, you know, I've got a number of books sitting around here just about how to write. There's one called Business Writing for Dummies. There's one called Everybody Writes. Uh, there's bunch of LinkedIn courses that I've taken on on business writing. So that's helped, I think, and, and copywriting as well, I think is is super important. So persuasive communication, persuasive writing, those are skills that I personally, I guess, just as somebody who is not just a data scientist, but a content creator. And, you know, my role right now is in marketing. It's mostly technical marketing, technical content creation for the purposes of marketing. It comes into play extremely, extremely crucially. There's actually a question coming in from Katya on LinkedIn. She's saying she's from Peru, living in PA, I'm assuming California, and she's doing the inverse of you, Spanish to English, but she feels that's a lot harder. And do you have any tips or advice for her? I think that'd be an extremely well-suited question for you there. What, what was her name? Uh, Katia. 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 Okay. All right. Well, encantada, Katia. So you're definitely following the exact opposite of my journey. My tips would be to stick to it. I mean, I don't know how your experience, how how your level is right now with 
learning English as a Spanish speaker, but it takes time. It takes a lot of, you know, personal time that you have to invest in yourself to really grow in a language and become confident in it. So just stick with it. Do not get discouraged. You're going to have these ups and downs during the entire language learning. And then also it's very important to be just if you're going into the professional world and you're doing interviews and, and working in English as a second language for you, confidence. So work on your confidence. Some of the, it's really interesting because some of the best, we can say best English speakers that I saw in Spain weren't necessarily um, the people that I was working with, these executives, and even later on when I worked in, in the different companies as a data scientist. But the people who I would say spoke the best English, but they were Spanish, were the people who had the most confidence. They weren't necessarily speaking without errors. I knew people who were making mistakes over and over as they spoke, but they would go there with confidence. And nobody cared about the mistakes then. You, know, you just you just forget it because you see them speaking with confidence. They're getting the message across. So who cares that they made a couple of grammar mistakes? Like, especially if, you know, me being, a, uh, knowing a second language, I know how hard it is to be perfect. Nobody cares. Go up there with confidence, speak, get the message across. That's that's the most important. Interesting question coming in from, from Russell, friend of the show, Russell. Do you find your multilingual skills with spoken and written language do you find that they help you when translating between different coding languages? Ah, oh, okay. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if, and I don't know if you've seen this podcast. I had it with uh, with Ken earlier this year. Yeah, earlier this year, Ken G and I. I was on his on his podcast, and we were talking about the similarities between learning languages and you know English, Spanish, and then learning programming languages. So they have their similarities, but then they also have their their differences. I don't know if learning a language, it might have helped me with, with programming in the sense that it helped open my mind more. Because when you only know one language, you just know English, for example, and you've never done programming, it's like you have one view of the world. And the moment you learn another language and you open your mind to Spanish or Arabic or whatever it may be, you, you get a new view of the world completely. And I think I would say, yeah, at least a part of me, because I opened my mind to Spanish and started seeing the world through a different lens, it also helped me with programming because I was able to get into that mindset quicker, I think. And again, seeing the world from another way, in this case, through programming and, and functions and computers. Yeah, I, I like that question. It's interesting. So yeah, anytime I apply for a job and they ask languages that that you know i always put like python sql r eva so on and so forth. and it's coincidental that you were just talking about kenji because kenji just left a comment and said that he tuned in at the right time and so he must have heard you really? do the ether and, and joined it on the live stream katia says mucho Hi, gusto. <laughs> katia says mucho gusto y gracias por responderme nada nada yeah so all right so let's 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 talk more about i guess you worked a lot with executives, right? So you probably got some tips that you can share with us about how we can simplify things for executives, because not only did you have to simplify things that were complex topics, you had to simplify it into another language. I'm sure you got some killer advice on, on what to do in those situations. Yes, yeah, simplifying for executives. And I've definitely had a lot of experience with that when I was dealing with the the language learning and teaching. But nowadays, when it comes to like working with data and explaining different data insights to executives or to clients and so on, I would say that when I'm preparing these things, and especially because I teach a lot of classes, and in my classes, I'm always trying to find ways to explain these complex topics, maybe to beginners. 
And the, the key thing is really just practice. So before I go to a meeting or to a class, a training, I invest a lot of time into sitting down, you know, going through my presentation, my slides, my doc, whatever it is, but also going through like pretending I'm in that situation right now and literally talking out loud and going through how would I explain this to them? And I try to put them, I've tried to put myself in their shoes. So you might know what is something as simple as like linear regression, for example, but I try to put myself in the shoes of a business person who's maybe never been through a full statistics course. So how would I explain that to them? So it's putting yourself in their shoes. And then before you go to these moments, these meetings or presentations, you sit down and you speak it through and you think, okay, would they really understand this? Like, have I used, have I made any assumptions coming into this thinking that <clears throat> they would understand a concept when they don't have, you know, statistics knowledge. So yeah, I think that the key here is just practice and putting yourself in their shoes before you get to the, the actual moment of the presentation. So when you put yourself in into their shoes, like, is there kind of like a universal thing that most CEOs tend to care about or universal points that you've noticed through, you know, all these interactions that you've had, if, if such a thing could exist? I don't know if there's a universal point. I think the the most, the best thing you can do is when you're explaining something is using examples. So making sure that whatever you're presenting, you're showing them a real life case, a real life example of something that they are close to. So you're really bringing it down to their level and you're showing them what value can this bring to, to their world. Yeah. So I guess like the power of story at that point, right? Like making those numbers not be these lifeless digits on a screen, but actually connecting it to, to a story, connecting to their customers and things yeah. they care about. Absolutely love that. Uh, by the way, Scott yeah. Taylor is in the house. Scott Taylor says that what an experience, Business English Consulting. This is uh, this interview is happening on the heels of you just linking up with everyone. Uh, you are hanging out live and in person with Kate, George, Ben, Scott, and Diana. And Diana. Yeah. How, how was that? Did you guys have a good time? Was anybody shorter than you thought they would be in person? We talked about this in person. Yeah. We we had this we had this discussion actually. So, well, for those tuning in right now and that don't know, yesterday we all got together a headquarters of Dedicated and we were all hanging out. And yeah, we we talked about this. We we were just hanging out in in one of the rooms and we were like, "Oh, you know, did anybody come here and get surprised by seeing someone like maybe they were much taller than you expected, much shorter, but no surprises in our case." Like Everybody, Kate, Ben, Scott, Diana, George, everybody is what I expected them to be. <laughs> and I got to see when one, one of the comments was we got to see the back of their heads for the first time. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. That's, that's actually a good point. Yes, seeing the back of somebody's head. I always wonder if when people meet me, will I sound different in person? Because obviously, like, like I, the mic and how close I am to it just makes my voice sound different. Uh, then you then sound very like radio host professional. Well, thank you. I don't know. It, it sounds very, I don't know. I, I like it. I like it. It's uh, it, it's almost like in character because you, you saw at the beginning of the interview when I do that, like that countdown and then like I breathe in, breathe out, do that countdown thing. That's uh, yeah. just like my way of like getting into the, into the zone, to the character of whoever this is in front of you guys. It's still me. We got a question coming in from a friend of the show, Mark Freeman. Do you feel that working with big data? Big data is still critical for data rules, or is it mainly problem use case for large companies? 
there has lately been a big push about better quality data over just having big data in reference to what you said earlier, stating that your master's included big data and, and background being in data engineering. Yeah, there's there's this balance. Like everybody wants more and more, you know, wow, data, more and more. But in the end, you can collect all the data you want, but you need to put some use to it. And if you're collecting a lot of data that you're not using for anything, it's dirty, it's unorganized, it's inaccurate, whatever it may be, then it's useless. So yeah, it's just as important having quality data, not just collecting and collecting just for the sake of collecting. So yeah, I mean, having quality data, I think we can talk to to Susan about that getting the the coat on your on your data. <laughs> I don't know if Susan Susan's going to log in too and log in at the right moment. But yeah, I mean I know there's a lot of big believers and and getting quality data out there and I think it's a big struggle for all corporations is just finding a way to organize all the data that we've got at hand and also make it accessible for the right knowing when you've got so much data when you got this big data, it's hard to have it like in the right hands. Even as a data scientist within a large, large organization, you don't. There's no way that you can know everything that's out there. So having some way to to organize it and be able to access it in the way that you need is also a really big challenge. It's almost like a way to think about data as well. Like it's it's. I often okay. So I have this thing that I play around with uh, on my desk just to you know try to make it back into a full cube. But to me, this is what it feels like when I'm doing data engineering tasks is I've got all these different disparate chunks of data and I need to organize it into a cube or, you know, take the Rubik's Cube example. Like it's all kind of mashed up and your job is to kind of organize it and put it into like the, the nice Rubik's Cube uh, thing. Uh, by the way, I've had this since uh, Christmas and I still have yet to uh, put it together. It's <laughs> quite, di- quite difficult. I don't know, man. Like I've, I was, so I, I came from like a, more like a math-ish background, so I studied stats in grad school as well. And I was in a biostatistician for like five years before moving into data science. And it kind of was vastly different for me because I didn't realize there was so much tech involved in data science, right? I was coming at it, you know, mostly from, you know, academic perspective, using mostly SAS and R and things like that. And it it was challenging to, you know, confront these technology challenges. So did you, how did you overcome that if you face that challenge at all? Like, I guess what I'm trying to ask is learning new things as they you know come up in your career. Like, how do you handle that? How do you manage that? Especially relevant when you're working in tech and data science, just because it's always changing and there's always new things. And especially if you make moves in your career, you're probably going to, if you change from one company to the next, very likely they're going to have a completely different technology stack and you are going to have to learn some new things. You're going to have to convert your skills into a different language or whatever it may be. So it's definitely, I would say like do, going through these changes is difficult. It's a bit frustrating, especially coming into a new environment and you know you, you feel like you're just climbing this uphill battle. But once you do get over it, it's really, it feels very satisfying. But how I handle it, I mean, I don't think I have, again, I don't have any secret sauce to this. I, I remember that when I did my master's, which was, I graduated in 2016, so business analytics and big data, it was a bit of a buffet master's because we got exposed to a lot of different technologies and a lot of different programming languages. We did, you know, very intense R, very intense Python, very intense SQL. 
And then on top of that, learned a couple of random things. I know we learned like Hive, we learned MongoDB, just random. But by being exposed to so much, it helped me have a good idea of everything that was out there. And then from there, as I moved from different workplaces, I was at Nielsen. Well, actually, I was first at SaaS, the the software company, SaaS. Yeah. And then Nielsen and then Google. But every single place was very different in what they used. So every single time I was having to learn or modify my understanding of different languages and technology stacks to get on board. But I think that's no, I think nobody expects you to come into the place, you know, come into the place sprinting and and understanding everything. You should always have this ramp up time for you to get familiar with, with what you're going to be working with. I got a love hate relationship with SAS. Like I used that for like five years as a biostatistician. I had to take, they had to take so many certifications for that thing. Like I took three exams, like, I didn't want to, but I had to, but it wasn't too difficult to, to learn, but switching from SAS to Python. So I started learning Python in 2017 after just using SAS and then R. That was such a, such a leap, man. Like that was really challenging to make that leap from SAS to Python. The only saving grace I had was the fact that I knew what I was doing in SAS. So I could do something in SAS and her replicate it in Python and check and see if I got the same result, whether it was manipulation of data or whatever computation. Um, I made the the same leap, by the way. I did well. Mm-hmm. I did SAS to R and Python, mm-hmm. but I, I do have a fun fact. Since we're talking about SAS, I actually studied at the university that invented SAS. A lot of nice. people maybe don't know that, but I did my bachelor's studying statistics in the SAS hall. So literally in the building where they invented SAS, which is really cool. So I I have cool. it very close to my heart. <laughs> that is pretty cool. I feel like I was so underprepared in grad school, man. When I reflect back on on grad school for us, it was just, it was literally like proofs. Like I did nothing but solve proofs and like that was it. Like that was grad school. It's very I, academic. Yes, it was very academic, like with, with stats. Like we used R in a few classes, but not enough. Like it didn't like permeate the, the program. It was all by hand. It was, yeah, it was rough. I feel like it really did. Like if anything, it prepared me for a PhD. But even then, I felt like it was felt underprepared. Uh, How did you learn, by the way, R and Python? So R, I learned R when I was at UC Davis. Like I picked it up there, and then we used it again in grad school. So I just doubled down on it. I just kind of just played around with it. One thing that I guess I can say I'm a natural at is I just programming languages just click with me. Like it could be anything, and I can just pick it up real quick. And, and understand it, whether it's like, you know, VBA, that's like the first thing I did. So I worked as an actuary right out of grad school and doing a lot of work in Excel. So I was writing a lot of macros in VBA for Excel. And I just got exposed to it with one of my colleagues and I just picked it up from there and was able to just experiment, play around. Like I don't really care if I ever break anything. So that's something I have uh, going for me. But yeah, it's just one of those things I just feel like I'm a natural at is, is picking up programming languages and, and writing. That's very lucky. Yeah. What about you? Is there anything that you feel like you're just a natural at? I think not programming and not languages. Like I do have to study and um, really focus to get to wrap my head around. Maybe I'm a natural, I would say like statistics, for example. So whenever I'm learning just statistical concepts and theories, they click with me really fast. And I love, I love just pure statistics. So, which is great, obviously a really good backing to have when you're in data science. So what are you most excited about kind of, you know, there's all these new 
technologies coming out. For example, StyleGAN 3 was just released recently, but there's not really a lot of new statistical methods that I think that come out. Are, are you like, What excites you, I guess, in terms of the new methodologies and new technology that is, is coming out? Is it mostly the academic research stuff? Is it the cutting edge, like deep learning stuff? What do you find more fascinating? I, I mean, I, I can't think of any, I don't know of any statistical theories that are going to be new. Those are really tough to, 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 it's a very old field. So it's tough to find something completely new. So I love like, you know, break, breaking edge, new things, emerging technology, and just to see where, where the future is going. I love reading just technology news and seeing all this new stuff. I think we were messaging about it as well. At one point yesterday, we were talking yes. about, you comment, you were telling me about the, this metaverse or whatever it is. Yeah. that Facebook is investing all this money to create this metaverse, I believe it's called. And I love I love stuff like that, but I think it links back to my love of sci-fi as well. Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense. Like I love learning about these new technologies and people are very much, I guess, people doubt the the possibilities behind AR and VR, but you know, people doubted the internet when it first came out and people doubted cell phones when they first came out. So we never know what is going to be this next like revolutionary thing that completely uh, disrupts the way that we live. And could it be the metaverse? Well, but I, I like, I like reading this, reading about this, these types of things and kind of taking them with a, a sci-fi approach and imagining how, how our future could be. Yeah. It's really interesting because I think we tend to just not be able to conceptualize how fast technology could change. You know, I was born in 1983. I'm kind of old. I remember when the internet first came out. I remember my first computer that I was working on was like a 386. And it had, I think, a hard disk of less than a gig. It was slow by today's comparison. I remember when the internet still had to like dial in the early 90s. And now look how crazy it's become, like how integral it's been you know, in our life. Like we wouldn't, like this, like this, this is an evolution of not even 30 years, which is, insane so just try to imagine what the next 30 years is like this this metaverse thing like it's it's interesting so this is being recorded october of 2021 and apparently next week facebook is supposed to be changing the name of the company just to be more in line with the metaverse and i was listening to an interview with mark zuckerberg yesterday just trying to figure out like what what's this metaverse thing about is i don't know the sims is the only thing that i could compare it to but there's a show on amazon prime called the feed i'm not sure if you've seen that or not no, what's uh, it called? The feed. The feed, yeah. And I think like okay. on a long time scale, that is what the metaverse will will become with the descriptions that I've kind of heard people uh, talk about what what they, they, they envision it to become. Uh, so definitely check out the feed. It's a super interesting show. I will. I think you'll enjoy that. Another question coming in from the audience here from uh, Kevin. How do you practice being present during tough times and tie back to your purpose with the work you do? That's a good question, man. I like that. Well, it sounds like a deep question. So what was it? What? How do you tie yeah. back your purpose? What was it? Yeah. How do you practice being present during tough times and tie back to your purpose with the work that you do? Oh, that's a, a really deep question. A big one. So how do you how do you stay present in tough times? I mean, I, I try not to be too negative, first of all. So I everybody has their ups and downs. I personally, for example, um, just moved to New York City a couple months ago. We've had a lot of downs. We've had a really rough move for a lot of different reasons. And but at the same time, I've tried to keep my focus on what I'm doing. And even when you have, you know, down times at work, and you're not feeling confident in yourself, you know, maybe one of your presentations went bad, just not letting the the negativity bring you down, because you're going to have these ups and downs, just think of, you know, what, 
what is coming up next. So I don't know if that answers the question, but just staying present and always tying back to your ultimate goal where you're trying to go. Do not let negativity bring you down. Just keep your head up, keep a smile and, and move forward and try to find, even when something doesn't go your way, you know, like say you don't get a job that you were interviewing for, or you didn't get the promotion that you thought you were going to get. I always think of it that like things happen for a reason. So you didn't, you might not have gotten this job, but it's because there's another door that's waiting to be open for you around the corner. So I always try to like, you know, I move on, I try to move on because I think that every, every single thing happens for a reason. And it's one thing is going to lead to the next. And it's definitely been the case in my journey. So I don't overthink things. I don't overthink negativity because there's always going to be something better coming. I absolutely love that. Love that response. Like for me, dude, I just remind myself that I'm going to die. Like that's just, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And it did. Great way to happen. look at it. Yeah. And it's going to happen any day. So, um, all right what's there to be upset about that the universe has yeah. been around for many billions of years before i was here it'll be around for another 70 to 80 billion years after i'm gone what's the big deal doesn't really matter right yeah. like but That's in the true. most like positive way possible right like it, i don't use that as an excuse to go do, do stupid stuff anything just means that time that you do have is that much more special so just enjoy it yeah in terms of tying it back to the work that i do and like i my work right now is interesting i literally feel like i've got like the ultimate job that's that's for me so i just i create projects i write about them and i communicate with people and it's a very creative data science type of role right like it's not necessarily dealing with like stakeholders and things like that like the business aspect of data science it's more just communication education and doing fun stuff yeah and so it sounds like something i would like to yeah it's great man like it feels like play it feels like it like i'm playing like i sit here like you know all night just writing code and like doing stuff and it's just it feels like play to me it's it's enjoyable but then from the outside people looking at me like my wife is like why are you, why are you still working i'm like oh, i didn't even know i'm still, still working this is so much fun so let's let's uh let's talk a little bit about your experience being a woman in data a woman in tech i was wondering if you had any words of advice or encouragement for the women in our audience who are breaking into or they're currently in our world yeah i i can definitely give tips on that First of all, and I think one of the first tips I would give, but this isn't just for women in tech, but it definitely helps as a woman in tech, but it's for anyone um, exploring or getting into this field, it's to find your passion. And I think of this because of what you just said, that you are just working all night and the time flies by so fast because you enjoy what you're doing. And everyone should try to find something that they enjoy. People get into data science for different reasons but make sure that you truly enjoy what you're doing, or at least a part of it. Because when you are passionate about what you're doing and when you enjoy it, you're typically going to be good at it and you're going to get better at it. You're going to continue growing and learning. Um, so that's important. And then for specifically for women in tech, just take advantage of networking. So meet other women in tech, maybe find others that you can look up to or a little bit more senior than you network with your local community, maybe find if there's any any organizations within your within your company or your school, but get involved. And it helps, I think, to hear what other women have been through in the field and to kind of give you that hope. Because we, I mean, we do sometimes get, you know, we get put down or we get kind of ignored in a field that could be very male dominated. So it helps to have to have other women by your side. And then also like supporting each other. So it's not just meeting these other women, but 
you know, maybe, maybe mentoring relationships, but also being very supportive of others, finding ways that you can bring other women up with you and praising them, never putting someone down. So that's very important. And another, a last thing I would say for women in tech specifically is work on your, your confidence, learn how to sell your worth in the workplace. We typically do, our, our gender typically is a little bit more humble and we, and there's statistics around this. There's statistics around how women do not negotiate or they negotiate much less. They don't put themselves in the spot for promotions as often as their male counterparts. So there's a lot that you can, you can work on this, working on your confidence, how to sell your work. And along, along with that, I would recommend checking out that you can search for I Am Remarkable. It's an initiative with Google. But if you put imremarkable.withgoogle.com, it's this initiative. It's a workshop that tries to help women, but also just minorities in general, how to bring up your confidence and learn how to sell yourself. Because it's, it's not bragging when what you're talking about is facts. And it's learning how to do that because it helps take you very far in your career. I also love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm wondering what, what can we do as a data community, uh, you know, talking to all the guys out there, uh, what can we do to, to foster inclusion of, of women in data science and, and AI? I think, and, and again, we talk about women in tech, but also just minorities in tech, whatever minority it may be, whether it's an element of gender or, or color or culture, whatever it may be, but we should have diversity across tech. It's one of the fields that I think diversity is possibly the most important just because technology now is, has creeped into all aspects of our lives and it's affecting many parts of our lives. We need to make sure that the teams working on that tech and building these algorithms and products are also taking in mind all of the different types of people that are out there. So what can, what can we do to help foster more women in tech or whatever, it, or whatever minority it may be? But it's just, especially if you are, if we're talking about this male versus female, if you're a male in the field, help bring up your female counterparts. So try to be a little bit more aware of the situation. When you attend a conference, your next conference, for example, in tech, uh, think for a second, how many of the speakers are male versus female? Most times in a tech conference, they're majority male. Next time you're sitting in a meeting, maybe it's a meeting of engineers, take a second and think how many people sitting at this table are male versus female? If it's majority male, there's a problem and that typically happens. So finding a way that if you can be an ally and help fix the problem, and that might mean, for example, if you're in a room full of, you know, all male engineers, and then there's two females, making sure that they get their chance to have a voice at the table. And that might mean just calling them out and making sure that you're highlighting the ideas that they're saying. I don't know if you have any experience as well, but, and if you've maybe noticed, if you've ever stopped to notice some of these things, but I know for me, when I, go, when I was speaking at conferences, especially in person, I would notice it a lot more that I would go to these conferences and get on stage and I would realize that I would be one of very few women at that, you know, on the stage at the conference. And then even in the, in the audience, it would be a lot more male uh, dominated. Yeah. I mean, just the attendance at my data science happy hours that I host and the data science office hours, they tend to be very uh, dominated by, by, by men, but I would love, you know, I, want more diversity and want more inclusion. I want more women to come and share their experience with leadership and share their experience with the problems they're working on and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I've been fortunate to, to have some awesome, you know, friends come on the show, but 
you know, I want more. I want more of them to come because I want that space to be for, for everyone, you know, like uh, I'm very big on that inclusion and, and diversity thing. But it's weird. You've got a woman you... on the on the show today. So you yes, get a, that's a, right. a plus point today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's one thing I, I am intentional about. Nobody's noticed this, but for the longest time, I made sure that every episode I released was uh, gender balanced. So if it was, it'll be, you know, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, just try to make it as gender balanced as possible. But then uh, that became really uh, hard for scheduling, but I just try my hardest to, to make sure everybody's voices are, are heard. I love talking to And this to is a, scientists. this is a great way. This is a great way to show how you can make that extra effort to help foster more diversity within tech. Like your, this example is exactly what we need more of. Thank you very much. Yeah, trying to trying to do my <laughs> trying to do my part, trying to help people or help the community rather be you know inclusive of all people. It's weird because everywhere I go out outside, like I'm a minority, <laughs> but in the field I'm not. It's all Indian people. It's uh we're we're rampant in the field, so it's the one place where I don't really feel like a, a minority. But I love seeing how diverse it was. I had this preconceived notion that data science was all just like Indian people until I started my data science happy hour and I saw how. Mm-hmm diverse it was that might be a byproduct of you know the mentor mentoring thing i'm part of data science dream job 95 percent of our students there are all indian um and so that was just my notion i was like oh everybody in data science is, is indian but yeah it wasn't until i started being more active on linkedin and hosting these happy hours that i saw really how diverse it is um, awesome awesome space yeah let's uh let's do one last question before we jump into the random round okay it is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? This is a very, a very deep and powerful question. I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily need to be remembered. I don't need to be like famous or anything. Uh, I think my only goal would be to leave the world better. It was as a better place than when I came into it. So whether that means just you know taking care of our planet, being a good person contributing somehow to how society grows, but just making sure that I leave a good mark, a good mark on the planet rather than hurting the planet. I do love that. Leave, leave it better than, than you found it. You've definitely, yeah, definitely doing that. You've definitely left my podcast better for being on it. So thank you for, for swinging by. Let's go ahead and jump right into the random round. So you've done a lot of traveling, 50 countries. What's the most beautiful place you've ever seen? I get asked that a lot, actually. So I've done, I did a lot of traveling, definitely pre, and I always, when people find out, they always ask me, oh, what's your favorite country or what's your favorite city? And when I get asked that, I do not have a top one. It's impossible to decide the the prettiest place. But some of my my absolute top memories are things like, uh, like exploring Petra in Jordan. And then similar to that, exploring the pyramids in Egypt. I was actually in Egypt at the pyramids when the pandemic hit. I had to make a, we had to make a, a last minute decision whether we were going to cut our trip short. And we decided to stay in Egypt during the, it was like the pandemic was kind of exploding around the world in March, 2020. We were traveling at that time and we ended up doing our whole trip and coming back and they closed the borders of Spain a couple days after we got back. So we cut wow. it really close, but it was worth it. I got to see the pyramids. So yeah, Petra, the pyramids. I also got to see the sunrise over Angkor Wat in oh, Cambodia. Wow. Yeah, that's a good one. That's that's very much worth it. And then another one is like camping in the Sahara Desert. So I did that in the south of Morocco. I've done that twice, actually. And it's it's incredible. Being able to see the sky and the stars from the middle of the Sahara Desert when there's nothing around you, you can 
there's nowhere else that you can see the sky like that. I can't even imagine, dude. That should be, oh my yeah. God, that would be absolutely beautiful because you don't see many stars in, in cities. So you, uh. you, you would be shocked at how, just how many stars there are. When you go to like the middle of this very secluded place, like the Sahara desert, the, the sky is just covered in stars. It's, it's crazy. So it's very much worth doing. I've, I've, I've seen the sky like that from the Sahara desert. And then also did like this camping thing in the country Oman. We also rented a car and drove across the country and did some camping in the desert there. And it was the same thing. We were in this very remote area and we looked up at the sky and it's just like, you just stare straight up and you can't look away because you've never seen the sky like that. You're looking into space, literally. Yeah, that is awesome. That is yeah. absolutely beautiful. I love that imagery. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I guess I'll just share mine too. Like this one place that just Oh yeah, yeah, like, tell me, like, tell me. Cause you've like, done a lot of traveling, right? Yeah, definitely mostly throughout Europe, you know, and some other places, but I just have this memory seared into my into my mind. It was in Greece actually, and it was in uh, Cape Sunion at uh, mm -hmm. the Temple of Poseidon. So yes, right I know up it. There I know it. Overlooking the Aegean Sea, and I had the entire thing to myself. Like there's nobody else there, and so just sitting there, just seeing that, like it was just basically. And that temple was, I don't know how many thousands of years old, still just standing, like. It was insane. It's just a, a crazy and, feeling. And there's a Greek myth. There's a Greek myth at that cliff, a very famous story. I don't even remember the whole story now. And my my Greek father would kill me for not remembering it. But the, I remember that I went, I've been to the same cliff and you should read up on the, the Greek myth, the mythology behind it. Yeah, it was, it's uh, one about where, do you know what I'm talking about or no? Yes. King Aegeus was sitting there waiting for his son to come back. Son to come back. Yeah. He yeah. said, make sure that you have, you know, I want to know if he's alive when he comes. So have the sails a certain color. They forgot the to flags, sail it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And he, and he yeah. jumped and that's why they named it the Aegean Sea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know it. You know it very well. Greek myth is well that. So it's another thing that like, I, I love Greek mythology. So I know all these crazy myths. I read a lot of that when I was younger, a lot of Greek myths. Uh, speaking of reading, very interesting. Yeah, I'm let's see right now I'm reading and I've been slower to read lately just because I had so much going on with the move. But recently I started a really unique book that I found. It's called Iraq Plus 100. Hmm. And it's it's sci-fi, I have to admit, but it's arguably the first sci-fi collection of short stories from Iraq. So it's 10 Iraqi authors. It's originally written in, in Arabic, but translated English. But 10 Iraqi authors, they were asked to imagine Iraq 100 years after the U.S. occupation. And they write a sci-fi story about it. So That's very unique. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But I do That's recommend it. I like it so far. And I recommend others check it out. It's Iraq plus 100. And there's a similar one. I, I found this one because I read the, there's another one called Palestine plus 100, and it's a similar concept. So there's just these two books, but super, super interesting. Definitely gonna check that one out. That sounds really, really fascinating. Uh, yeah. What song do you have on repeat? I'm, I'm weird. I don't have a, a song on repeat, actually. I, I am or I was a big electronic house fan. And now I'm a little bit lazy. I don't have like a song. I just turn on house music to listen to during the day. A lot of times I log into group therapy radio. I don't know if you know Above and Beyond, but I, I love Above and them. Beyond. Yeah, yeah they're okay. awesome. So yeah. I love Above and Beyond. And I will just tune into this radio station thing that they have. And I leave that, I leave that running. 
Yeah, same here during the day. It's pretty much like progressive house, trance music. Tom Ives uh-huh. put me on to a station on YouTube called Monster Cat Silk. And they have um they have a few different stations. And the station I like is just YouTube. It's on YouTube, Monster Cat Silk, uh, Progressive House 24-7. Uh, so I just listen to that, just working and, and doing data science while, while I'm doing that. Yeah. Why and and I forgot to ask you, what book are you reading? I missed it. I missed it oh. when you asked me. Yeah, so right now, most of my reading is directed by guests that I'm having on the podcast, which is fine because I, mm-hmm. I, picked, I picked the guests. But right now, I just got done with this book by Marcus Dusatois, Thinking Better. It's not released yet. I think it's being released next week. I got the advanced copy. They send me these books. This is a really, really good book. Just The Power of Mathematical Shortcut. Then also his other book, I listened to it on Audible, uh, but about the physical copy as well. It's called The Creativity Code. And this is the book that I'm most interested in. Uh, in that looks really interesting. Yeah, it's called uh, Art and Innovation in the Age of AI. So it's just all about deep learning and how deep learning has augmented human creativity in so many different ways. So this is a book that, this is the, the main reason I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about this. But then during our email exchange, he's like, oh, let me send you a copy of my new book. We can talk about a few things from there. And I was like, all right, great. But then after this, I've got lined up the book by Joe, 10 Rules for resilience i'm interviewing one of them on the podcast and a couple other books um and then i'm wrapping up with podcast recording in november i'll stop in november and then i could just read uh and i'm going back to read some nasim taleb that's what i've got on the- oh nasim nicholas taleb is a, yeah. a classic yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah yeah yep i just got done listening to anti-fragile on audible so i, I do both like i i like to have audiobooks and I like to have the physical books. So if I like a book a lot on Audible, I will just go buy the physical copy. So that's it tends to go. Let me go ahead and pull up the random question generator here. And the oh, first okay. question is what incredibly strong opinion do you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? <laughs> this is such a random question. <laughs> What incredibly strong opinion do you have? Like a really random one. And I think about it because I have, I'm going to eat some of them over a movie tonight. Is that, do you know Sweet Tarts, the candy? Yeah, absolutely love those. <laughs> like, I don't know how I have this random thought, but Sweet Tarts, the only ones worth eating are the red, blue, and purple. <laughs> That's, yeah, that is kind of a random thing because they all taste <laughs> Well, it the says same. you're completely <laughs> unimportant. Okay, so really random. What was your best birthday? Best birthday celebra- celebration was skydiving over the Swiss Alps when I was 25. Wow. Uh, we'll skip yeah. this one. Do you have any nicknames? Uh, yeah, my, my husband calls me Glitty. Glitty? Like glitter. Glitty, ah. but like glitty, like for glitter. <laughs> I wonder if there's a story behind that. There is, but I'm not even going to get into right. that. <laughs> let's, do, uh, let's do one more here. What's your worst habit? My worst habit is drinking Red Bull. Yeah, that stuff will yeah. kill you, man. That stuff will... <laughs> Uh, but i do i don't drink coffee though i drink tea and then when i get really tired i have a red bull so it's my yeah my bad thing what about you to hear something interesting what's your worst your worst habit instead of clipping my son's fingernails i bite them off because he is too squeamy and i'm afraid i'm gonna take the top of his finger off so i just (laughs) i bite his fingernails off so he's probably gonna develop a fingernail biting habit because of of that yeah you gotta change that you gotta change christina Obviously LinkedIn, but how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? 
Yeah, it's just LinkedIn. I would say connect, follow on LinkedIn, and then also follow the hashtag book a week challenge, hashtag book a month challenge. And both of those, you'll be able to see all of the, the books that I recommend, as well as all of the others that are a part of this initiative for reading. You have a lot of others as well sharing books. I've seen you sharing books with that hashtag too. Mm -hmm. So yeah. thank you. We're all sharing ideas. But yeah, just stay stay connected on, on LinkedIn. Christina, thank you so much for taking time out of schedule to come on to the show today. I appreciate having you here. I loved being here today. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. And my friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I know we went over a few minutes, but yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out, man. It was good to chat with you finally after so long and then uh, get to interact with you and get to know you. Hopefully we can do this again at some point in the future and hopefully you can join in on a uh, happy hour session. That'd be awesome to, to have you there. Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me on. And hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully the audience liked it. And also do these, do you post the, how does this go? Do you post it on LinkedIn? I mean, on YouTube as well? Yeah, so this is live streamed to uh youtube and live stream to linkedin um and it'll okay. be drip dripped on the podcast much later so right now my cue on the podcast is i've got episodes scheduled out until like march or april of next year i've got a huge oh my plan. gosh yeah how I many just, do you usually record in a week so this one would be number four this week i this had 12 week? Yeah, I had 12 this month total i just go That's on sprints crazy yeah it just frees me up for other stuff like i was like the holiday yeah. season is coming and so my sister and cousins and all that stuff are going to be here yeah that's and, true and i wanted to take uh january and you know december to just read what i wanted to read so yeah now i'll have enough to last me to like you know may ish it's just a good buffer like it's just a good buffer yeah. to, to have that out a there. very big buffer yeah yeah typically how i roll <laughs> but take care christina have well, a good it was yeah, it was really nice meeting you. It was really yeah. good having like this one-on-one -on -one chat. And yeah. hopefully I'll see you soon, either in, in office hours or whatever it may be. And you have to let us know, by the way, if you ever come through visiting New York. Because yeah. Kate's in, in New Jersey and then I'm in New York. So let us know. Because the, the get-together that we had yesterday it was because George is was on a, he probably told you, but he was yeah. on a trip here. And then we kind of randomly last minute got everybody together. So yeah the, uh, the company i work for now comet is uh headquartered in new york so i'm sure there'll be an opportunity to mm. swing by and i'll definitely let you guys know for sure yeah yeah let me know if you're ever coming through i will let you know if i go to winnipeg i'm not yes. sure but i will <laughs> i will let you know here. if you're and welcome. when i do absolutely Thanks. take care Bye. all right have a good rest of your night bye-bye <laughs>